So the first of the readings is 1 Samuel chapter 8, 1 through 7 at page 426. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Then if we go across to page 432... Uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 12, uh, starting from verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him, And do not rebel against his commands. And if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Then we go over to page 433, uh, starting uh, chapter 13, verse 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. 
Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Thanks, Robin. Let me encourage you again to um, stay with us. Um, if you can, for uh, lunch today, it would be great to have you with us. We, we run these lunches, as I said before, just so that you can get to know each other. That's the whole purpose behind our lunches, and we would love you to stay and join with us after if you can. I wonder if you've ever asked this sort of a question. What does God want from me? What does he require of me? Or perhaps even more simply, what is my purpose? What am I to do? These are great questions, aren't they? Ones that I think most of us would have answered or grappled with to some extent, more or less for some of us. They are, I think, what we call existential questions, the very big questions. You might be wondering what the narrative of Israel's first king has to do with these big existential questions. What can the story of Saul show us about how God wants us to live our lives? That's the question I want us to be working through today. And I hope that as we get to the end of these eight chapters of narrative, that's right, there's eight chapters of narrative that tell the story about Saul. It's certainly not a small story. I hope that as we get to the end of this, these eight chapters, you see quite clearly what God would want of us as his people. If you've been here with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. So far, we've looked at the boy Samuel when he was younger and at his mother Hannah. We've looked at uh, Eli's two sons, Hopney and Phineas. You might remember them. They were the scoundrels from a few weeks back. And then last week, we looked at that fascinating story of the Ark of the Covenant that made its way into Philistine territory. God himself destroying their false god, the false god of their arch enemies, the Philistines, inflicting punishment on that land and that people and returning back to Israel with tribute in the back of a cattle cart. This week we're looking at Israel's first king, Saul. I've already said it's a big chunk of the Bible, eight chapters, and there's simply no way that we can cover all eight chapters in detail. I really would like you to go home and read these chapters. They are interesting chapters to read. And many of us probably haven't read in detail the story of Saul recently or maybe ever before. I'd encourage you to find a comfortable spot and try and read this story in one go. And as you do so, I'd love you to think through this question. What is the narrative about? What is it actually saying? So when we read the Old Testament, I think it's really worthwhile us asking, what does the story mean? It's eight chapters about Israel's first king. What do you think it means? See, in these chapters, Israel gets its king. It's been asking for that king right back to page 407 or Judges chapter 21, where they um, started asking for a king. And here, in these chapters, we see that begin. We see the king being anointed. We see the king fighting valiantly at times with great success and at times with failure. And eventually we read of the first king, Saul, also losing his kingdom. If you've read the story before, I wonder what you think it's about. 
What does it mean? Eight chapters in total, it must mean something. Here's why I think this text matters for us today. What it's all about. I think it shows us clearly that for God, obedience really matters. Obedience really matters, I think, is what this text is all about. It matters even when you're right at the top of your game, when you're successful in your career. Obedience even matters for God's King. And if you're to be God's King with any success, then you'll need humility to recognise your role is to serve God and to serve Him with absolute obedience. So these chapters are all about Israel's first king, but they're also all about God. They tell us what God is like and what God would want from His king. If you know the story, you'll be asking, I think, a few times as we read through it, is King Saul really that bad? See, unlike other kings that we might read in the Bible, Saul does not worship foreign gods, he doesn't sacrifice his children, and yet... His kingdom is torn from him. Why? Why does that happen? I think it's because God is establishing with this first king the requirements of his kingdom. God will have a king who has a heart like his own. God will have a king who is humble and obedient. I think it still matters for us today. I want to show you that, why that matters for us today in a few minutes. But first off, I just want to spend a little bit of time looking at King Saul with you. Earlier, Robin read to us from the start of uh, Samuel chapter uh, 8. You'll find that on page 426. We see um, Samuel became old. He anointed his sons as leaders. And his sons were essentially scoundrels. I think we're supposed to see a familiar pattern. You remember Eli's sons are being described as scoundrels. And here we have that familiar pattern. One generation follows after God, but the next does not. And perhaps Samuel's sons are not quite as bad as Eli's sons, but they accepted bribes and they perverted justice. And so it's perhaps not unsurprising then, is it, that the people cry out for a king. But if you read on, you'll see that Samuel's disappointed. Why? Why doesn't he want them to have a king? Do you think maybe he wanted his sons to be the rulers? I think actually what's happening here is Samuel is disappointed because he knows that ultimately God ruled Israel. The story of Saul, the man who would eventually become the king, is the story of why a human earthly king is never really going to be a great king for Israel. And Samuel knows this right from the very front. And yet, nevertheless, God answers the people's wish and he chooses a king for Israel. I want us to pick the story up now in chapter 9. So we're going to skim through today and we are going to do that. But just pick the story up in chapter 9 where we're first introduced to this character, Saul. Have a listen to how Saul is described. You can read about that in chapter 9, verse 1 on page 427. It says this, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abil, the son of Zeor, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphnia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, 
as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So humanly speaking, if you're looking for a king, if you're looking for someone to lead you like all the other nations, to fight your battles and to be victorious for you, Saul is your man. He's got the right heritage. He comes from a family of some standing. He's got the right looks. He's handsome. And he's got the right build. He's a head taller than any other man. And if looks mattered, he's exactly the man that you'd choose for your king. Indeed, even his name is kind of a good name for someone who's going to become the first king. The name Saul means essentially the one you have asked for. I've been thinking about this all week. Who would I compare Saul to? And Wayne's kind of tall enough. Does he fit all the other criteria? Who is Saul to be compared with today? Well, essentially, I think he's kind of your ancient day equivalent of the captain of your favourite football team. He's strong, he's handsome, he could all you could want if appearances matter. And chapter 9 tells us a story of how Saul meets Samuel, and in chapter 10, we read about how Saul is anointed and chosen. It's an amusing story. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you again, please go and read this story. See, although Saul has been chosen by God, what happens is that Samuel casts lots with the people and the lots eventually fall to this one person, Saul. And they go to look for Saul and they can't find him. He's missing. Actually, he's hiding in the baggage area, in the storage area somewhere, not wanting to be chosen. And I think it's supposed to be a humorous element to this story. And it shows us the providence of God. See, as the people call for a king, God chooses one, and then God's got to go and tell them exactly where Samuel is playing hide-and-seek, where Saul is in the baggage area. You want a king, but even when God chooses you one and names him by name, without God, you're lost. You still need him to tell you exactly where that king is. In chapter 11... The benefit of having an earthly king is kind of seen for all the people. What the earthly king does so well is he unifies the whole of Israel. He's able to gather an army of 330,000 men and lead them into battle. In chapter 11, we see the people getting their wish. We see the king doing just what they want the king to do. And I think it's really the high point of Saul's reign at this point in chapter 11. Because by the time we get to chapter 12, the attention shifts back to Samuel, our prophet. And he delivers what's essentially a retirement speech. I don't know if you've ever heard a retirement speech. In my experience, they normally include a, a bit of a reflection about how things have changed in the person's tenure in the job they've been in. Often they paint an optimistic outlook of how the organization will manage without this person. And they end almost always with a promise to send back photos from that inevitable caravan trip that happens afterwards. Samuel's speech is nothing at all like that. Rather, Samuel recaps for the people the history of Israel. And then he says in chapter 12, verse 12, this, But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Amorites, was moving against you, You said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. 
Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. Samuel reminds them that asking for a king wasn't perhaps the best thing for them to do. Because God has always been Israel's king. God has always been their rock and their fortress. See why Samuel's upset with the people for asking for a king? With Nahash, the king of the Amorites, moving against them, all the people really needed to do was to turn back to God, their king, and trust him. He would have delivered them. And yet in their distress, they call out for an earthly human king. But in many ways, you can't blame them, can you? Because an earthly king is tangible and visible and familiar. Samuel doesn't want an earthly king, but he knows it's inevitable. And so in his retirement speech, he outlines exactly how the king must behave. It's there in verse 14 of chapter 12. It says, if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands... His hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. So here's the crux of the matter. Obedience really makes a difference. Humility before God matters. God is the real king. Saul, you are just God's agent, his instrument. Don't forget that. God is the one who calls the shots. But unfortunately, this is a message that Saul will go on to forget. In chapter 13, Robin read it to us before, we see Saul's downfall. It's a downfall that drags on for a number of chapters afterwards. But ultimately, it's a downfall that results from his hubris and his disobedience. Let me just try and paint the scene of what goes on in chapter 13. Saul calls together his army to fight against their great antagonists at the time, the Philistines. They'd just beaten the Ammonites, but the Philistines, well, they're kind of another league altogether in terms of a people group. And the Philistines come ready to retaliate. In chapter 13, verse 5, we read this, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Israel had kind of poked the bear. And when the bear turns around to pounce, they suddenly see how big and how scary this bear in the form of the Philistines really is. And when Saul's army see what they've done, they begin to run away in fear. In verse 6 we read this, When the Israelites saw their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets and among the rocks and in pits and cisterns, and some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They even left the promised land. Now, if we were to kind of understand the story of what's going on in chapter 13, it's important that we kind of realize that the Israelite practice was to offer a sacrifice and to inquire of God before going into battle. That is, of course, the right thing for them to do, God is their true king. He's the one calling the shots. We need to remember that God's mouthpiece at this time is Samuel. He is the prophet. And Samuel's not there at the moment. He said he would come, but he hasn't arrived yet. 
And as Saul waits, more and more of his soldiers are disappearing. More and more of them are hiding among the rocks and disappearing down into the pits and cisterns. And he wants to get going before he's got no army to march with him. And so he takes matters into his own hands. Rather than waiting for Samuel, Saul offers the sacrifices. And as you read the story, I'm sure few of us can blame Saul. This is a high-pressure situation, and the priest is running late just at the time they need him. But remember what it means. Samuel is God's mouthpiece. So without Samuel, Israel's king can't hear God. And therefore, they don't know what God wants of them. Saul is acting on his own, and he's deaf to what God might say. And when Samuel finally does turn up in verse 13, we read Samuel saying, You have done a foolish thing. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Seems a bit harsh though, doesn't it? Even unfair? I think we want to plead with Samuel at this point. Come on, it was just one time and and you were running late. You weren't exactly punctual. But here's the thing, isn't it? God has said that his king must be obedient. He must be humble. He must delight in the word of God. For the human king is just God's agent. Obedience is more important to God than outward visible signs. Obedience is far more important than winning the battle. See, Saul was worried because his army was shrinking. But just a few chapters earlier in the book, we'd seen God on his own defeat the Philistines without a single soldier. God needs Saul to be obedient, not entrepreneurial. He needs him to be humble, not mighty. And because of his disobedience, God tells Saul that the kingly line ends with him. His son won't rule in his place. In chapter 14, we meet the son who misses out. His name is Jonathan. Jonathan is presented as a man who would be the perfect king. He's shown to be wise in contrast to Saul's foolishness. He's brave in contrast to Saul's cowardice. He's obedient in contrast to Saul's disobedience. And yet, he will never be king. Even though he's the son of Israel's king, he will never himself be king. We don't have time today to read the story of Jonathan, but I would encourage you to go back and read it sometime this week. In a way, the story of Jonathan is a tragic story. See, here is a man who could have been king, perhaps even should have been king, yet due to his father's disobedience, will never be the king. I wonder where you think that leaves Jonathan. Do you ever feel like Jonathan in life? Perhaps you're stuck working with someone who's not a great boss. Perhaps you feel like you could do a better job than your boss. But at the same time, you know that you may never get the opportunity to do that. Or perhaps other things in life just aren't working out the way that you would like them to work out. Things aren't happening according to your own plan. Perhaps you miss the job that you've applied for. 
Maybe you haven't managed to shrug off that illness or injury that you thought you'd be able to get rid of. Perhaps you're feeling like things just never go your way. The business venture never takes off. You never got that head start that you needed. If that's you, I'd love you to read the story of Jonathan. See, he was a man who had so much potential and yet never got to be the king. You could read his life story almost as a tragedy. I've been challenged this week by a quote from Dale Davis. He's a great commentator who writes in the book of 1 Samuel. The quote's on the screen behind me. This is what Dale Davis says. Maybe a tragic life isn't tragic if it's lived in fidelity to what Christ asks of us in the circumstances he gives us. It's great, isn't it, when we feel like God is on our side. It's great when the things we pray for end up happening. And I want to encourage you today, pray often. Bring your cares and concerns to God. We should ask God for our daily bread. We should bring our concerns and our petitions to Him. Calvin says that our prayers enable us to reach up into the storehouses of the heavenly realm. But we need to remember that fidelity or obedience is what God requires of us. We worship God because He is God, not because one day He will make us a king. We follow him wholeheartedly because he's the creator of the universe, not because he answers our prayers for a new job. Obedience matters. It matters for us today too. For those of you who do go home and read the story of Saul's life, I want to say a word or two about how the section, this section of the Bible ends because chapter 15 is a really confronting passage in the Bible. It contains some horrific material. We see God ordering Saul to go and destroy, completely wipe out a people known as the Amalekites. So I just want to say a few words very briefly about that um, to prepare you for that as you go and read this week. I want to acknowledge firstly that this is a horrible command. I say that while maintaining that God is a just God, but nonetheless, this is a horrible command. So what do we do then with chapter 15? Well, I'm thankful to two people, Des Smith from the city and Charlie Scrine for their, uh, what they've said and written on this topic. But here are five things that you might find useful. Firstly, this command is written a long time ago. It's written in the Old Testament times. Since Jesus, there is no command in Christianity for violence. Indeed, violence is forbidden. Turn the other cheek is Jesus' command. Let me be crystal clear about this. There is no justification in the Christian religion for violence. Today, God calls Christians to die rather than to use violence in his name. Second thing, it's probably worth noting as we read these chapters, there are only a very few verses in the Bible where God calls for the absolute destruction of a town or people. It's not the normal way in which they conduct war. Thirdly, this is not race hatred that we see here, but rather this is God's judgment. In fact, God withheld his judgment for 400 years for the sin of this land, these people to become great enough that he would order this destruction. Fourthly, it's worth just thinking about our world today. 
and pondering, I'm not sure this is necessarily right, but pondering, is our world today kept safe because of the threat of violence that hangs over our world? And the fifth thing, I think, is that this is an emotion-packed passage as we read it. But it's about judgment. So we need to read it with care. Well, having said all of those things about chapter 15, let me just remind you of what the point of the story of Saul is about. The story of Saul shows us that Israel's human king must be obedient to God. In these chapters, we see Saul making decisions that the king simply should not make. They seem like minor transgressions as we read them. But that just goes to show us how seriously God takes the idea of obedience. The king must obey every word of God. In chapter 15, we see Saul again disobeying God. And although minor, and in some ways justifiable, I think as we read it. Let me show you the results of what happens. Come with me to verse 26 of chapter 15. Here Saul is asking Samuel to return with him after Samuel has just rebuked Saul for his disobedience. This is what Samuel says. I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. Remember Saul, he's the handsome guy, robust, he stands a head taller than everyone else. Remember that Saul was the man who led Israel's armies to defeat the Ammonites. Who could be better than Saul? Well, certainly there's not a person in the land who is stronger, who is more good-looking, who is more powerful. Saul's the king, after all. Who can be better than Saul? Well, it must have something to do with something else other than height and good looks. The answer is it has something to do with the heart, something to do with obedience and humility, because that's what matters to God. Have a look if you've got your Bibles open, just over the page there to chapter 16, verse 7. Here is what Saul, Samuel, sorry, is looking for in the replacement king. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, ultimately, God is not interested in outward appearances, He's not interested in our success according to the world's standards. No, he's interested in our hearts. He's interested in obedience and humility. That, I think, is the lesson that we need to take from these eight chapters about Saul. Obedience matters. Our attitude towards God matters. Having the humility to see God as God and ourselves as part of God's creation matters. You know, ultimately, it takes Israel... A thousand years from this point to find a man who has a heart of humility and obedience. That man will become Israel's true king. The man, of course, is Jesus. God himself, yet humble and obedient. In Jesus, we have 
one who has every right to be the king and yet serves perfectly. We see in Jesus both humility and obedience. And we see that perhaps no better in no, uh, no more clearly in any other passage than in Philippians 2. I want you to come there with me or you look at the passage on the screen. It starts with Paul's instructions to the Philippian church. They're people just like us about what they should be like. And then it changes to give them the reason why they should be like that. Let me read it to you. To the Philippian church, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here's what Jesus is like. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, in Jesus we see a king who demonstrates obedience and humility. In Jesus we have a king who's worth following. What does God want us of, want of us today? I think he wants the same things, obedience, faithfulness and humility as we follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus. He wants our hearts, our allegiance, our faith. And he wants that regardless of whether we're successful in business, regardless of whether we're fashionable or good-looking or sporty or just a plain nerd. He wants our hearts. And here's the great promise for each of us, I think, that comes out of these eight chapters in 1 Samuel. Our lives will not be tragic if they're lived in fidelity to what Christ asks of us in the circumstances he gives us. Let me pray for us that we would live our lives that way. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus, who is our King. Father, we ask that in your kindness, you would help us to follow in his footsteps, that we would live in obedience and faithfulness to you, that we would have lives that are humble and lived in fidelity to you regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Father, please help us to be a people who take obedience to you seriously. We thank you for equipping us with what we need in your spirit to do these things. And we ask that we be known for that. Amen. One of the things we do here is answer questions, and I have one great question that came in to the SMS line today that I'm trying to do my best to answer. It says, how is it just that Jonathan misses out on being king for his dad's mistakes? It's a, it's a really good question, isn't it? How is it just that something that your father, your mother does, uh, that seems to exact revenge on your own life? Um, how is it just? Well, it's just because that's what God decides to do and that's uh, part of the way that he operated in the Old Testament uh, at many times uh, his word says if you do this if you don't follow me in these ways uh, you'll be judged and punished 
and that punishment will go down from generations and generations, not just the sons, but for many, many generations at times. Is that the way God operates today, though? That's the question I think that should come out of thinking about that for us now. Um, And I want to suggest to you that that's not the way that God operates today. In uh, Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, there are two passages that speak exactly of this thing. In Jeremiah 31, you might like to have a look at this with me. It's on page 1,229 of your Bibles. Jeremiah uh, here is starting to speak about what is promised to come. And right at the very bottom of the page on 1,229, he's speaking about the days that are coming, the good days where the land of Israel and Judah will again have people and animals and will be an abundant place after its destruction. Uh, He says in verse 29, In those days people will no longer say, The parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Essentially what that's saying is if the parents have done something wrong, the children are going to get worried because they're about to be punished. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. Jeremiah is speaking of a new way in which God will behave. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. If you come down to um, verse uh, 33 of that page... This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. At that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That, I think, is the way in which God operates and deals with us today. Um, No longer are the children's teeth set on edge because the parents have eaten sour grapes. I hope that answers uh, your question. If you've got further questions, love you to either text them in each week or to pop, a, pop it in the response slip and put it on the, in the everything box or just come and see me afterwards. Thanks, Chris.